Hi, and welcome to Journal Club. I am Bobby Connor, and today uh, my guest is Dr. Sam Campos, who is also a specialist in veterinary emergency and critical care. And we are going to be talking today about a journal article from JVEC, the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care, called multi-center investigation of hemostatic dysfunction in 15 dogs with acute pancreatitis. So that is the topic of Journal Club this session. Um, Dr. Campos, thank you for being here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. So this was one of, uh, one of the articles that, uh, that you selected from the, for us, the most recent issue of JVAC, so issue 29. Um, authors are uh, Dr. Nielsen um, and Drs. Holm, Rosansky, Miola, Price, and De La Forcade. So why don't we start by you just kind of giving us an overview of this study? Sure. Um, so this study was a, is a prospective study that was based in tertiary, tertiary referral centers where they used about 15 client-owned dogs um, who were suspected to have pancreatitis based on um, a couple different things, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and then looked at different blood samples, including platelet count, PCV, and TEG, as well as antithrombin, prothrombin, um, activated partial thromboplastin time, D-dimers, von Willebrand's factor, and fibrinogen, and kind of compared them to reference ranges for healthy dogs. Um, and in doing this, they were trying to decide whether, you know, is there hypercoagulability in dogs who are diagnosed with pancreatitis based on their, the, 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 I guess the, um, yeah, the panel of tests they, yes. they did. Yeah. Um, and then, um, if, if things like TEG would be useful for these dogs. And so, um, I guess I'll just go stepwise kind of through the different, um, headings of the, of the paper. So in the introduction, it, it kind of discusses pancreatitis and what we know about it from a veterinary perspective and that it's associated with anything, anywhere from local, mild local signs, to um, more severe systemic signs or even death. Um, they talk about the systemic inflammation that we see associated with pancreatitis as well um, and kind of the, the relation that we see with that with uh, hyper, uh, hypercoagulability development of, of thrombi and things along those lines that they um, kind of, I guess, push them to do this study. Yeah, yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Um, and people, they, they uh, kind of have a, have a little um, comparison to the human side of things where they note that D-dimers uh, were correlated with, with the disease, disease severity um, as a marker of intravascular fibrin deposition as well as thrombi formation. Um, and so they have that kind of as a comparison as well because they're using that as their basis for what, what parameters they're looking at. Um, the dogs they used, so they, these were client-owned dogs that presented to two different specialty, again, tertiary referral hospitals. Um, they had to have a diagnosis of acute pancreatitis, and kind of what they used were clinical signs of so the dogs were vomiting. They had abdominal pain um, in conjunction with two other things, and so it was either their abdominal ultrasound findings, which were the typical kind of uh, mottled hypochoic pancreas with hyperechoic inflamed mesentery around it, um, and a positive PLI test. Um, and so they use those as kind of their two main things for making this diagnosis. And then, of course, had other, usually these, these patients were coming in with other things such as, you know, CBC chem, urinalysis, and things like that as well to substantiate concerns for um, biliary um, disease as well. Um, the dogs that have received any medications that may alter coagulation were excluded from the study as well. Um, and those could be things from like steroids, if they were on platelet inhibitors, heparin, um, or synthetic colloids or other blood products, those dogs were kind of kicked out and not used for part of the, part of the study. They also kind of didn't include dogs that had other comorbidities that would 
contribute to coagulation issues such as PLN, um, PLE, or immune, like IMHA or ITP or Cushing's disease or a known history of cancer. Uh, when they enrolled these dogs, they collected blood, um, and they were collecting it mainly for the TEG test. So they used Kalin-activated TEG um, and performed that test for these for these dogs as well. Um, they also did disease severity scoring. So these dogs got um, an Apple Fast score, organ dysfunction score as well, um, and then necropsies were performed by a pathologist as well as the on, on the nine survivors to look for evidence of any um, clots and things along those lines. As far as the stats go, um, this is kind of my weakest area here. Uh, that's true of a lot of us. Um, so they com they compared um, the TEG values that they got, which they were using R, K, um, alpha, M, A, and G, and compared those to kind of the established reference intervals for TEG. Um, they used a Wilcon uh, rank sum test, which compared the TEG between the reference values for these these parameters and, this, and normal healthy dogs. Um, they, of course, set their significance at P less than 0.05 for all tests, um, and they used commercial software to perform their stat analysis. So um, do you want me to go through the, the table then as well? Should we kind of step through that? Sure, or? yeah. Um, so then they, before going into the results section, or I guess kind of with their results section, they have a table that lists, again, the kind of major TEG parameters. So R and K um, expressed in minutes, alpha angle, MA and G, and have reference intervals that are listed, and then the study dogs and the p-value. Um, I guess the ones that are probably the most, I mean, they were all, they all I guess, clinically significant. Um, uh, the I don't know if I should just read through this table and, or not. Yeah, all statistically significant. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I mean, you know, rather than reading them to everybody, hopefully, you know, read these things yourselves um, uh, to go through that. But um, yeah, so they, they compared the means essentially to the reference interval that they had um, for their institution. So um, that's how they kind of report is, is the mean and then um, the interquartile range uh, to give you an idea of how the, the spread was over those 15 dogs. Um, but yeah, I don't think we need to, to read those okay. at this point unless there's something that jumps out. Okay. Um, and then heading to the results section, they do the very typical um, kind of breakdown of the 15 dogs they had in the study. 13 of them had ultrasound findings, kind of what we consider, I guess, clinically to me, the, like the gold standard for diagnosis of pancreatitis since we're not biopsying these guys. Um, and eight had ultrasound as well as PL, PLI testing um, combined. And then two dogs had a positive PLI and those were used as like um, that was their their diagnosis of pancreatitis. Um, two of the dogs, unfortunately, did not survive. Uh, one died from complications associated with pancreatitis. The other was euthanized because um, he wasn't responding to treatment. Uh, the median ho hospitalization stay was five days. Um, and then it talks about the different scoring things. So I mentioned before how they were doing um, uh, organ dysfunction score, um, the TFAS score, and then they had initial uh, canine pancreatitis scores as well. So for the dogs that survived a discharge, um, not surprisingly, the, the MOD score was one in comparison to the dogs that died. The MOD score was three. Um, the Apple FAST score for dogs that were surviving was one. Again, um, much higher in the dogs that didn't survive at five. And again, with the median initial uh, canine pancreatitis score uh, was five for dogs that survived a discharge and eight, again, higher for those non-survivors. I really like that they included um, the different scores in this paper, because even though that wasn't the point of the paper, the more, I think, as researchers, clinical researchers, we use these types of things, it, it starts to kind of catch on, and, and then it becomes more meaningful. Um, I mean, it, I always kind of joke like, oh, what do you know? Sicker dogs were sicker. And, yeah. you know, we, we you know how useful is that clinically? I, I don't know how useful 
those scores really are clinically, may, maybe more so if we use them regularly. But I think from a research standpoint, that'd be really helpful because this is a, a small study. And if somebody does something later, and it would it would allow us to compare that. So I was actually really pleased that they used scores and, and multiple scores. I thought yeah, that was really like good. Yeah, it was kind of like a bonus feature that yeah. didn't really touch on exactly. in, the, in the title yeah. of the study. But it is nice. And I mean... We always say that we use them for trends anyway, so it's nice, again, to be like, yep, they're yeah. showing the kind of the pattern that we, we suspect. Um, all the dogs that they used, so the 15 dogs in the study, were hypercoagulable on TEG. Um, again, that table one kind of gives you all the TEG variables they looked at, and, and dogs with acute pancreatitis had a higher MA, a shorter R time, shorter K time, uh, greater alpha angle, and a higher G values, again, supporting the idea of the hypercoagulability um, compared to the reference ranges. Yeah, the, the only thing I would say about this is um, I don't have we we don't have in this anywhere that I that unless I just completely missed it was um, individual dog results. Yeah. It was all means. Yep. And so I mean they said all dogs were hypercoagulable on take analysis and and I mean I believe them but does that mean all of them were hypercoagulable on each individual variable or for all of them or for most of them um, or you know I I wasn't clear from reading this how they came to that. Um, and I, I sort of wish um, they had given us just, a, you know, I know it's a bit cumbersome, but a bigger table that had, here's dog one, two, I mean, three, with, through with, 15. With only 15 dogs, yeah, it's not. <laughs> that, you know, um, it does take up a lot of space on the page. And so I, I get, you know, not really wanting that. And, and maybe people who aren't coagulation nerds uh, like me would... Um, would uh, wouldn't care about the rest of that, and so um, I can I can understand the average person being like, I would not go through that. But um, but that was my question when I was looking at um, that first table, table one, where I was like, okay, well the means um, of the dogs, and and you can see the interquartile range, not um, uh, um, standard deviations, but. Um, but I thought, okay, well, also if you just look at that, like for example, if you look at MA which they have their reference interval as 54.6 plus or minus seven, essentially, um, and or their interquartile range is seven. And then for the study dogs, uh, it was 68.3, so 14 points um, you know, higher, millimeters higher than the, the middle of their reference interval. But if you look at their interquartile range, it, I mean, you can tell that there is overlap. So the, the study dogs that had the, the lowest MA within that group would have overlapped with the reference range for that. So mm -hmm. at least that's how I'm understanding that. And so while, yes, I agree overall, the um, the, everything shifted, the means shifted. Um, if I'm looking at an individual dog and it doesn't fall very clearly outside of the reference range, what am I going to do with that information? Um, so that was a little unclear for me in their results. And, and I, I wish they'd given us those details. We probably could email them and I bet they would, but, mm -hmm. um, um, but that's one of the, the, the tough parts about these types of studies, I think is you can get bogged down with all the data, um, but having it can sometimes be really helpful. So that was a question I had from, from the results was um, how much can I put into that, um, the, comparing the means, I suppose. Mm. See, I had, my, my thing was the, the clinical aspect, the PLI, the fact that they used that as a, like the two dogs who were yeah. just had the positive PLI, that kind of, not that it bothered me because I mean. It does, it's but, tough in yeah. these things, right? But I, I guess I go back to, 
pancreatitis is, is one of those things that like you sort of know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you could make the argument that they could have done more extensive diagnostics to rule out other possible causes of those signs. Um, but I actually, I also, I take issue of relying too heavily on ultrasound because I, you know, countless animals that I've had over the years, I, I had one on clinics just a couple of weeks ago where um, it, it did not have any abdominal pain. It didn't have any vomiting. It had lack of appetite. That was it. Mm-hmm. And on ultrasound, it was like, oh, this pancreas is really upset. And I'm like, but I don't, I'm not, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what to do yeah. with that. So, I, and maybe, maybe, you know, um, do we have any good studies comparing ultrasonographic evidence of pancreatitis with any actual gold standard, like biopsy or histopath? Does that exist? Uh, I don't think it does. I don't, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I, our producer can see if he can look that up. Not that I've read. I, mean, I don't think nice. he's going to find it, but um, it, it would be a tough one to find, but maybe that'll be a, a thing for a future one. Maybe somebody can do that. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great study idea. We can talk with a radiologist. But, uh, you know, they're always so confident, like, oh, this one yeah. has pancreatitis. And mm-hmm. I'm like, but it doesn't have all the signs. So I think for me, for this paper, the fact that the, the primary inclusion criteria were abdominal pain, like the clinical signs that go with it, for me, that was really important. Because if you said, oh, they had, you know, sonographic evidence of pancreatitis, but they didn't have the supporting clinical signs, I'd actually be even more skeptical. So I was, I was actually okay with that just because pancreatitis is so difficult and and frustrating. I think it's a valid, um, you know, criticism. I just, I'm not sure the best way around it. Um, Other than to say they have to have all of these tests and they all have to fit, but then it makes it really hard to do research. Um, So, um, but it is, it's a a valid criticism um, of that, I think. But um, so what's the take home here? So I think the the general story for this, or what I take out of this, at least from a clinical standpoint, is that dogs with suspected pancreatitis are hypercoagulable, which uh, kind of fits with the whole. We, it's a very inflammatory state. We kind of had that had that theory long going in in veterinary medicine. Now that we we know that happens, um, and that if you were to do a tag on these guys, they would show evidence of hyper, hy, you know the median one at least <laughs> <would> show <laughs> yeah. evidence yeah. of hypercoagulability. Um, I guess as far as like what that translates into an intel like how I would change things as how I would treat them uh, yeah that's the I, question I, I, right? I don't uh, see how I would how I would treat them differently and not yet yeah, I don't like, I don't know what we can say yet so we, they did say that one uh, one of the ones that died um, had evidence of uh, thromboembolic disease mm-hmm. which I, for me so for me I, I think this was actually a, a well-done study I think it was you know well organized obviously it's small this is veterinary medicine they're all small but uh, you know we're, we have this mounting body of evidence that says yeah inflammatory disease are hypercoagulable just like they are in people yeah. we've, we've kind of known this for a while I actually I don't know if you've ever heard this but there is one um, what I think is a rather elegant theory that um, the inflammatory system and the coagulation system are not actually two separate systems. They're mm. like one big interchangeable or interlacing um, system, which I think is, is kind of cool. It's a bit philosophical, but whatever. <laughs> um, but because they are so linked, anytime you have massive inflammation, which pancreatitis is a great example of, you're going to get activation of coagulation. We, we kind of know this. Like, I, I'm convinced. You don't, you don't have to convince me. I'm on the bandwagon. For me, it comes down to so what, right? Now, I, I think there is a so what. I really do think that, that that matters. Oh, and our producer, let's see, what have we found? Um, is this all in people or is this veterinary? Okay, so we've got up on our, our uh, it looks like a Google Scholar search, uh, ultrasound-guided real-time aspirates of pancreatic lesions. Uh, anything up there jumping out at you, Sam, that might be a good one? Mm. 
trying to trying to figure out here, going back to the question of how predictive are ultrasound findings of a pancreas um, at diagnosing pancreatitis. Um, and what we're finding is looks like um, a lot, not a lot um, or anything that I'm seeing that looks like veterinary things, a fair yeah, bit of yeah. stuff in people. Um, so I think this, this is a question that remains unanswered um, in veterinary medicine, which, you know, <laughs> add that to the pile of unanswered <laughs> questions we have, right? But um, so something to, to save for maybe a later discussion. Uh, thanks for checking on that. But we have, um, in, in my opinion, coming back to what we were saying before, we know hypercoagulability exists in these inflammatory conditions. The question that we have yet to answer in most of these diseases is, does that confer increased risk of thromboembolic disease? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, then does ameliorating that, can we reduce the risk of thromboembolic disease with our medications. And then the next question is which medications at what dosages right. and all those things. So we are just scratching the surface right now in veterinary medicine of probably hypercoagulability as a risk factor for thromboembolism is something we need to be looking at more. It's tough. And I've been saying this for years, like it's hard to diagnose, you know, covert thromboembolic disease. We all kind of know when you have a massive thromboembolism and they die, and you can maybe find that on necropsy. But even um, even in patients that die of thromboembolic complications and go to necropsy, um, I, I found this out years ago and was like really saddened by this. But um, but apparently those clots can start to yep. break down within hours, right? Yeah. Hours. Now trained pathologists can find the evidence that there once was one there, but that not of not in every case, right? So. That is the challenge. I think that's the big next challenge that we have in veterinary medicine is finding out, does this hypercoagulability that we find very, very commonly actually confer an increased risk of thromboembolic disease? Because we don't want to forget the other aspects of Urkel's triad. Mm -hmm. I sound, yeah, like I, clearly a hemostasis <laughs> mode. Um, but you also have sick dogs, right? So they have the other risk factors of just being down. So stasis of blood is probably there. Is there going to be some endothelial activation dysfunction? Mm -hmm. Well, it's that inflammatory, so yes. probably. Yep. Um, now, the fact that in 15 dogs, one was diagnosed in this study as having thromboembolic complications, my first thought is how many of them went without diagnosed complications? Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they certainly they could have had die them. from it, yeah. Right. Um, so we didn't, we didn't find it. Um, but were we looking for it? And sometimes when they develop you know, organ dysfunction later, maybe that was from microthrombi or Absolutely. maybe even macrothrombi yeah. that go undiagnosed. So I think that's the next challenge. We've got this you know, mounding evidence that we need to be concerned about hypercoagulability, but there's two more steps before we, I think, can start to really clearly say we should be doing something to prevent this. Now, having said that... I might be okay jumping ahead a couple steps and playing the odds um, because, um, you know, I, I, I struggle a lot with managing thromboembolic disease. Bleeding, I don't struggle that much with managing, honestly. That's, that's always been my take. Bleeding is easier to identify and it's easier to control and to treat. Thromboembolic disease is tough. So I, I recognize that right now today we don't have the evidence to support saying we should be treating these guys with heparin, with antiplatelet drugs. We, we do not have the evidence for that. I would still consider it. That's, that's my take. Um, just because more and more evidence of those, uh, of those things come up. 
the other question, which gets even tougher, is which patients? Like, right. is it only the ones that have this Apple score of, you know, of a certain degree? Is it only the most severe ones that have the greatest risk? So we're it, not even sure we can It would have been nice to see, to see, like, the, a combination of, for, like, the individual, their TEGs, their scores, to kind of follow that through, yeah, too, as well, actually, to see if there was any, any benefit as far as the severity of their, of their scoring systems yeah. in combination with the, their individual TEG parameters. That's a really good question, yeah. So did the severity of their disease overall and those scores correlate with the severity of their hypercoagulability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a small group of dogs, so I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't any obvious, but were there some trends? Did it kind of look, yeah, that that, that looks kind of um, uh, like it's heading in that direction. Just because clinically, I mean, pancreatitis is that spectrum too. So are you going to put every dog on some kind of, you know, like... How, how feasible and doable that, what what should be the, the cutoffs right. for things too, yeah. But the ones that you're like, this one's going to be, I mean, and that was a pretty sick group of dogs, I have to say. I mean, the, the median hospital say of five days, that's a that's a pretty sick group of dogs. Uh, um, yeah, range I mean, two to 13, two, so they had some you know, dogs there almost A couple of weeks. them were, you know, probably not as severe based on their scores and also how quickly got, they got out of the hospital, but they had some sick dogs in there and, and you know, obviously two of them uh, passed away, but, um, but some of the other ones were probably pretty sick. I don't know which of what the hospital stay was for the two that that passed away. But um, uh, at, at any rate, I, I think this adds um, some important information, you know, to the body of literature that we have. I don't necessarily, I don't, it wasn't surprising. Um, and I don't think it's at this point dramatically changing, you know, anything that I'm going to do. Um, but um, but anything that's coagulation related, I'm excited about. Let's get more people interested in it, right? Um, and that's one more thing that's boards worthy. Um, I can reference um, for exam questions, yeah. all that stuff. So uh, it is it is good stuff. There's good information, good stuff to review in here. Um, final thoughts on uh, on this article? I mean, I think it was good. I, I think your point is honestly probably now now it's intriguing me and getting my mind going about having each one individualized. But I, I think in general, it's a it it seems like a kind of simple simple but nice study to kind of just prove prove that point that we already had those suspicions of um but yeah i mean it'd be it, of course it kind of always it'd be nicer to have more dogs but it isn't yeah any rich people listening please send send <laughs> us your money we'll do the studies for sure the next step um awesome well Thank you very much, Dr. Campos, for taking the time uh, to talk about this with us. Uh, thank you to the authors of the, the study, Multicenter Investigation of Hemostatic Dysfunction in 15 Dogs with Acute Pancreatitis. We really appreciate your contribution to just our general knowledge. Um, and thanks for, for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.